Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at www.thepulpiteer.com backslash revelation. God, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you again for a chance to gather together. We thank you for... Thank you so much for your word and the inspiration it gives us for the way it points us to you, to your son Jesus, for the way it challenges us, the way it comforts us, uh, for the way it reveals you and your heart and your will. We thank you for a chance to study it and a community of people to study it with. We pray, God, that as we uh, go through this spiritual discipline of scripture study, that it would shape us, it would shape our hearts, shape our minds, and help us to indeed uh, see the world differently. And as we do so, to live more and more uh, in your image and as citizens of your kingdom. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I want to begin again with the opening statement of what if Revelation isn't primarily about future predictions? Because that's a lot of the times the way we hear it is this kind of um, scary future prediction stuff, and you're supposed to figure out what Israel is doing politically, and if uh, these battles over the Golan Heights or whatever are, are telling us something about what God would have us do and something. And, and a lot of the times, um, that stuff is so debated and unclear, I'm not sure what purpose it would actually serve. We just, I, I mean, and let's face it, um, the Middle East has been a mess for a while. My guess is, it will continue to do so. Um, and as the election cycle comes up, one of the questions they'll always ask is, so what are you going to do to help negotiations in the Middle East? As if any American president has a prayer. To, I mean, this has been going on longer than we've been a country. So I'm going to guess, just maybe, they're not waiting for their American savior to swoop in and change Israel. I, I don't know. I'm just going to throw that out there. That maybe the Palestinians and the Israel, people of Israel are going to be fighting for a while. It's not that we shouldn't encourage peace wherever possible, but maybe we should have a realistic sense of our own importance in it. Um, so anyway, that, I think the problem with kind of guessing those things is I'm not sure what exactly it's supposed to do. What if it's not about that? What if it's instead speaking to how we're supposed to live our lives faithfully today? And I really want to kind of hit that today um, to... to you know, to make it, uh, last time when I preached on this, I talked about it, unmasking realities, um, helping us to see the world around us differently. And so that's kind of one of the questions I want to keep pushing you on, is how does this unmask reality for us? Um, I want to kind of begin with, if we start with the sixth trumpet in chapter 9, I know we went through chapter 10 last time, <coughs> but if you remember, let's see if it's the next one in the... Oh, why is my thing not working? Spencer, could you go to the next slide? This remote's less fun when it's voice activated. All right. Um, so if you remember, we've, we began with um, going through the seven seals. We went through that, went into the seven trumpets. And within the seven trumpets, there's also, it gets to be this, there's this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet before we get into the conflict that we're going to get into in chapter 12. So you remember, after, between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was an interlude, and after that interlude, you, you get this, um, well, after the sixth 
seal. You remember the rocks are falling on people and, uh, and, and the people cry out, who can stand? Who can stand before the wrath of, of the Lamb and the one on the throne? And then we get this answer to who can stand in chapter 7, which is the interlude. And the answer of who can stand before the Lamb. What's that? The followers of Jesus. Yeah, the people, the people of God who have, been, who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Those people can stand, and so they're the ones who are standing there in, in the interlude. So the question is presented at the end of the sixth seal, and then is addressed in the interlude. So as we go to the sixth trumpet, um, at the end of the sixth trumpet, there's another issue that is raised. And the issue that is raised is this. It says in, in uh, verse 20, the rest of human... Ca- so you get this whole thing of judgment, on, and the judgment is supposed to make people repent. Verse 20 says, The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons. Oh, thanks, Alex. <laughs> or give up worshiping the demons and the idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which, they couldn't, which can't see or hear or walk. And they didn't repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornications or their thefts. So what's the issue? They were supposed to repent, but what happened? They didn't. So now the issue that's hanging in the air is people didn't repent. So how is this going to be addressed? And I'm going to, my argument is that this is what's at least in part addressed in this interlude. Okay, could you go back to the three and a half one, or go back away, Spencer? Yeah, I think that's the one. So, oh, <laughs> so, so I can push it anyway. <laughs> This is like when I was little and my parents gave me toys. All right. um, So (coughs) this time of tribulation uh, is uh, the the number three and a half. Did you notice that we had uh, some numbers that kept popping up? Um, And three and a half years was a number that continued to pop up. And so if you look back at at Daniel 12, 7, we went over this last time, um, but I'll read the the verses here. The man clothed in linen, who was upstream, raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, heard him swear by the one who lives forever, that it would be for a time, two times, and a half a time. So if you add those times up, what do you get? Three and a half. Time, two times, and a half a time, that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be accomplished. So the time, two times and a half a time, is this time of the shattering of the powers of the holy people. So during this period of three and a half times, what is it like for the people of God? Hard. It's persecution. So this three and a half in Daniel 12, 7 is a time of persecution. And I I would suggest to you that instead of trying to figure out chronologically when things are going to happen, we need to think... uh, just kind of theologically about what's being spoken here, that there's this period of time, there's this time where um, God's holy people are being persecuted. Also in Daniel seven twenty-five, 25, um, and they shall be given unto his power for a time, two times, and a half a time. So again, um, and they in this one uh, is referring to the people of God, the Jewish people. So they're being given into uh, this person's power for that three and a half. So three and a half in Daniel is a time for oppression for God's people. If we look in history, could you go to the next slide, please? 
If you look in history, um, oh, if, uh, I'll come to Revelation in a second. Go to the next one, sorry. No, sorry, go back. Man, this was easier. With the, I was better with the clicker and back again and back again. I swear I had that up there. No, never mind. I didn't include that. All right, so in history, here we go. Um, in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, Elijah prayed for no rain. Do you remember that? Where Ahab was, uh, well, Ahab and Jezebel. What did Jezebel want to do to the prophets of the Lord? She wanted to destroy them. So this was a time of persecution of God's people. In Luke 4.25, Jesus is talking. He says, for three and a half years, um, Elijah prayed and there's no rain. So this three and a half years of no rain is coming during a time of persecution of God's people. The Babylonian siege and destruction of Jerusalem. So it's a historical event as Babylon comes to take Jerusalem. Um, the siege and the destruction lasted roughly three and a half years. So if this was in your history, if you can imagine um, the mighty army of Canada coming down and sieging Washington, D.C., okay? and it took three and a half years, then they conquered it, and then they just slaughtered us all and moved us to different spots around uh, the world, would you, what would you, that three and a half years, that would kind of resonate in, in your memory of a time of persecution. Um, the Maccabean Revolt. So this is something... Uh, after, this would be uh, in between the Old and, and New Testaments, um, there was an attack by Antiochus Epiphanes, who was, frankly, a horrible, nasty person, um, just a brutal guy. He came to capture Jerusalem, and that took about three and a half years um, for him to do that between the attack and when it finally fell. So even historically, for the, for the Jewish people, this number was ingrained into their psyche that Three and a half is this time of severe persecution for God's faithful people. Three and a half is a time of oppression for God's people. Okay, now we can go to the next one. You can look in uh, the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, if you look at uh, chapter 11, verse 2, you have 42 months. Did you all figure out that that's about three and a half years, right? Three years would be 36 months, and then another six months, so three and a half years. So in 11.2, you have the measuring of the temple, and the nations are given the courtyard outside the temple. And they can trample on the holy city. So this is a, a way of, um, a, that could be a denoting persecution. That's three and a half years. In chapter 11, verse 3, it says for 1,260 days. So if a month is about 30 days, if you divide that out, you get 42 months, which would be three and a half years, um, where the two witnesses have authority to prophesy. So this is a time where the people of God are, are active, or the, where the witnesses are active, but it's also tied into that number of persecution. The chapter 11, verse 9, three and a half days. So here we don't have three and a half years, so it's a little bit different, but I, I want to just kind of note this. When the witnesses were, uh, were killed and their bodies were left in the street for three and a half days. Then they had this weird, like they were giving each other presents over that. Nobody said that for the weirdest thing you read, but that's, oh, good. Yeah, good, because that's strange. I mean, I can handle the dragons with multiple heads, but like, Dead witness present day is not, that's a, I'm not familiar with that holiday. All right, uh, chapter 12, verse 6. Again, the 1,260 days, and that's where the woman's in the wilderness, nourished in, in a place that's prepared by God. Chapter 12, verse 14. You have a time, two times and a half a time, where the woman, again, is nourished in the wilderness. And then chapter 13, 5, which uh, if you read ahead, is the 42 months, which is, again, three and a half years when the beast can exercise authority. 
And if you go th- keep reading through there, one of the things that Abyss is allowed to do is to make war on the saints. And so through this section of Revelation, you have this three and a half occurs several times. So I'm going to suggest to you that since it's drawing from the book of Daniel pretty heavily, this three and a half is representing a time of persecution for the people of God. Okay? A time of persecution for the people of God. Now, there's um, a couple... It, it, the, the teaching that you were probably familiar with, uh, the dispensational teaching on the book of Revelation, if you've heard anything of it, would talk about a time of the Great Tribulation. And the suggestion would be that um, the church is raptured. Usually it's their pre-tribulation rapture, folks. The church would be raptured, and then there would be this terrible tribulation on the earth. Um, I'm going to suggest that, just because Daniel suggests it, and looking through these, it looks like the people of God are there, that um, this three and a half years, and they, they would say the three and a half years are, are, those three and a half years add up to seven. Could you go back to, yeah. So if you look, if you add all those together, you're going to get more than seven years. You'll get, um, what, 14, 17 and a half years and three and a half days. So the, the idea of breaking this down into a seven-year Great Tribulation period, I, I just don't think holds up if you take it, I don't know, quote-unquote, literally. I'm going to suggest instead that every time you see this three and a half number, it's supposed to suggest a time where the faithful people of God are existing in a time where there's persecution, where it's difficult for them. And I would also suggest then that we are presently in that three and a half period. Now, you may think, well, I'm not persecuted, I'm just fine. And I'd say that's because we're particularly lucky right now. Um, but uh, there's, you know, news reports you can read weekly where the church is under persecution, um, and under persecution in particularly nasty ways. But also, I would say this, we may not be um, physically threatened, but our worldview, our way of seeing the world, understanding people, understanding what people are worth, the value of people, why, uh, how we're supposed to understand our identity, how we're supposed to understand the, the world around us. That way of, of understanding things is contrary to the way the world sees things. And so there is necessarily that friction there. It's this time of, uh, of these kind of conflicting worldviews. And so I would also say that numbers in Revelation are used figuratively. I mean, we've covered that with the Um, with 144,000 people or with uh, uh, just the different numbers that are used in Revelation are used figuratively. Um, And so I think that this three and a half is a cue for us to think of a a period of time before the return of Christ when God's people are under persecution. So, pause again. If this three and a half is representing that, then I'm suggesting that we're in that three and a half well, year of that three and a half period, that time, two times and a half a time period, how does this make you see things differently? How should we understand um, the world in which we live? Well, and what will, what will make it get better? Christ coming back. Right? This, is, this is the three and a half year period before rescue. 
Let me, so here's, let me throw out one since I keep using politics and we're in the election season. Is there, is there a person we could elect that will fix everything? No. We are living in a world that is um, fundamentally in conflict and rebellion against God. And we have been living in a world fundamentally in rebellion against In fact, we're living in a body fundamentally in rebellion against God. That's why we need Christ. So, um, okay. So I, I think this should affect how we see how we see things around us and to think of things perhaps more theologically instead of, um, I don't know, instead of with a thought towards a utopia. Uh, we'll look at the temple. I keep this three and a half in mind. The temple, I'm going to argue that there's the temple, the witnesses, and the woman. I'm going to argue that they are uh, different ways of portraying, in one manner or another, the people of God. And so that'll be kind of a maybe a, a new way of thinking about it for you. But I think this is actually a powerful way to talk to Remember, this, is, this vision was given by Christ to John. John wrote down the vision in letters and sent the letters to whom? Seven churches. And the seven churches, what were, what were they going through? Persecution and seduction, right? The seduction to follow idols. It wasn't just straight up. I mean, like Antipas, we know he died. But did everybody die? No. In fact, some people kind of went along with the culture and they were maybe thriving. Laodicea looked like they were doing well. And Christ quickly disabuses them of of that notion. But um, there's this kind of, there's the temptation to give in to idolatry and there's the persecution that comes in on the other end. So that's, remember, these are the people that are receiving this letter. This has to speak to them. This is speaking to their situation. Okay, so the temple... In uh, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, what is, what is John told to do? Measure the temple, right? So he's given a rod and, yeah. Some, yeah, well, he's told to measure the temple and then and the altar, and then, but not to measure the outside courts. Yeah. So I'm going to suggest that, and then it doesn't come back to like what the measurements really were, right? It doesn't say, oh, and it was... 42 and a half feet long, and it doesn't come back to that. So I'm going to suggest that the measuring is symbolizing something. It's not like God was like, you know, I built that temple. What size is that again? You know, tell me. Quick, John, here's a, here's a ruler. Go. So the measuring is symbolizing something. Um, and then the temple, um, there's a, 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 one of the commentaries by Gordon Fee. He wrote, here's a clear instance where the reader must think in terms of theology not in terms of time. And then he wrote uh, a little bit further down, looking at chapter 11, John and the church are being commissioned to do what divine judgment such, as such could not do, which is prophesy and thus bear witness to the risen Jesus. Remember, the problem that we have to address is judgment came. Did people repent? No. And so this is being addressed. Don't forget that. This is being addressed through here. So, um, and it, I'm going to argue it's not being addressed through the physical measurements of a building. It's being addressed... Um, through Christ and his people. And so this measurement, if you look at Revelation uh, 3.12, if you remember back in the, the letter to, letters to the churches, but in chapter 3.12, the people in Philadelphia were promised something. 
if they conquered? What were they promised? They will be a pillar in the temple of God. They'll be a, a pillar in the temple of God. Now, is this talking about a, a physical building? No, this is talking about the, the people are being... So the temple here is talking about, I would argue, it's talking about a, it's talking about a community. The people of God. The church. But I mean, the Old Testament people of God too. A pillar in the temple of God. In the temple in New Testament thought, if you look at, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? So the New Testament thought is, first, um, first the temple was the temple, and then Emmanuel happens, and who is the temple? Jesus. Right? Because remember he said, if you destroy the temple, I'll raise it up in three days. And he was talking about the temple of his body. And then what happened to Jesus after he rose again? Yeah, he floats into the clouds and disappears, right? So ascension into heaven. And then what does Jesus send to us? Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In us. And a lot of times we miss the, the like this should just kind of make your head pop off. I mean, it's just like, the, holy, the, the, the presence of God was so holy that could you just prance into the Holy of Holies? If you wanted to die, you could, right? That would be one way to <laughs> death by God aside or something. I don't know. What that, but it, go in, it, it, it was too much, and people were overcome. They couldn't, but now, because Jesus happened, the Holy Spirit can come and dwell in us. And so Paul is saying, look, if the Holy Spirit of the living God is dwelling in you, what does that make you? The temple, the living temple. This is why I say that our worldview as Christians says something profoundly different about the value of humanity than the rest of the world says. Because the idea that we would be living temples, temples of the living God, is an amazing claim. The, the, the God that created the universe, that the Holy Spirit of the living God would dwell in us and be with us and never leave us nor forsake us is a pretty big stinking deal. So Paul says that the, the, um, in 2 Corinthians six fourteen to 18, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So in New Testament thought, the temple is first Christ, and then when the Holy Spirit comes, the people. So when the temple is being measured, it's, I'm suggesting this is a way of talking about somehow um, something to do with the people of God. I would say the people of God, and I don't know if it separated the Jews from the Gentiles. I think it's, because it doesn't say the Gentiles, it says it turned them over to the nations. And I think this is a way of marking the people of God and apart from the inhabitants of the earth. Because if you remember, one of the tensions that goes throughout Revelation is you have citizens of New Jerusalem, citizens of the kingdom of God, 
and the inhabitants of the earth. The people who are following Christ, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, people who are um, following the ways of the world, people who are sealed by God, people who have the mark of the beast. And it's similar to, uh, you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Uh, An enemy comes and sows these weeds amongst the wheat. And what does the owner of the field say? They need to grow together. And then there'll come a point when what? There's a harvest and they're separated. Okay. And so that's, a, that's supposed to be a picture of now. The wheat and the tares. And, and that there's this distinguishing going on with the temple being measured. I, I would suggest the temple being measured is another way of, of protection. Of protection for the people of God. Now as I say it's a way of protection... You probably ought to think, what in the world do you mean by that? Um, because how are people protected? Does it mean that you're not going to be hurt by mean people? Does it mean that no earthquakes or volcanoes will get you? How are we protected by God? Spiritually, from the second death, I would say. That was another promise to... Uh, one of the, one of the uh, churches. You won't experience a second death. There's protected spiritually. Okay. This measuring of the temple echoes Ezekiel um, chapter 40, and for, 40 to 43 where um, Ezekiel the prophet is called to measure this great eschatological temple. So the temple had been destroyed. It, well, this is a, throughout Ezekiel's, you have the prophecy of the temple being destroyed because of Israel's idolatry. And then, um, if you remember, what happens in Ezekiel 37? Anybody know that offhand? You have a most famous passage in Ezekiel. He looks over this valley of dry bones. He says, can these bones live again? Prophesy. And he prophesies, and the Spirit of God comes. And, res- and this is supposed to be um, uh, like the redemption of Israel. And after that, in 37, then you get to the measurement of this great uh, eschatological new temple that God is going to do. And that temple then, is a, that, that prophetic measurement of the temple is a sign of the promise of God that God is going to bring restoration um, to his people. And, and so... I want you to think about that. If you're uh, Jewish people and you're waiting for the restoration of the temple and what's in their mind? It's a physical building. But then Jesus happens. And what's the temple? Jesus. And then Jesus ascends to heaven and what's what's the temple? We are. We are. In us. We are as the church. And so think about what that means that this promised eschatological temple becomes this great mass of the people of God. Because he's pulling from this Ezekiel imagery. There's going to be a time when the, when the Spirit of God comes and resurrects these dry bones. Now again, this should kind of sometimes rub against it and you think, well, but wait a second, but I... I don't always, I got up this morning, I didn't, I felt like dry bones, but not dry bones resurrected. Have you had those mornings? And for the people that are receiving these letters, they're under persecution. But John is reminding them, Jesus is reminding them through this vision, you're under persecution now, but never ever forget 
that Jesus Christ reigns. That's why chapters 4 and 5 are so central to this book. Because while you're going through crap in this world, you need to know that the one on the throne in heaven is still the one on the throne in heaven. And you have these promises to stay, stay faithful because if you conquer, you receive this. And so you get this, the, the mark of being sealed and protected, spiritually protected, this mark of being this, uh, the, the dry bones that have been resurrected. Well, Paul says, you know, clearly in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That there is, some, there is a reality to us that is more than meets the eye. This, is, this stuff is supposed to strip away. The world will tell you all sorts of things about yourself. It really will. It'll tell you a million ways in which you're worthless or which your only value comes in, in by that which I can extract from you for myself. And the Word of God says something strikingly different about you. It says, you are in the image of God. God loved you so much, He sent His only Son to live and to die for you and to be raised again. And you are a new creature in Jesus Christ. Those that... So, Revelation, you're a people that are being persecuted and tempted to go off another direction, and John's saying, remember who you are, and remember whose you are. And so this eschatological promise of the last things is, is fulfilled in Christ, and then given to, we are this temple that's being shown here. So you've got this um, protection that's going on. The outer courts, though, are not measured. The outer courts were the, the court of the Gentiles, but it's where the nations are able to trample the holy city. And the issue on one hand is persecution, I think, by them being trampled, but in a very real way, it's, as I said, it's like the wheat and the tares. You get these, these things together. You've got the altar and the temple being measured, and you've got the court right outside that is not, and, and so you get the sealed people of God, and then this kind of chaos going right alongside it, the wheat and the tares growing up together. And it's this... It's, it's this reminder to stay faithful. Remember who you are and remember that in Christ you are, you are sealed and protected. Um, just briefly, the, with the dispensational thought, um, so again, this is kind of like the left behind series of stuff. There's, there's an expectation that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and they'll start the sacrificial system up again. Um, and, and so that's kind of the more popular teaching or the, the pop, popular culture teaching in America on Revelation. If you look at Hebrews, and specifically Hebrews 10, you're going to find that the sacrificial system was fulfilled in Christ. There's a reason as Christian churches we don't, we don't sacrifice goats on our altar. Besides, it would mess up the carpet, but there's even deeper reasons, believe it or not, that we don't do that. Why don't we sacrifice animals? Because Christ. It was the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, its job was to point towards Christ. And in Jesus Christ, it was fulfilled. And Hebrews is very clear about saying, in Christ it was fulfilled, and it's done. It's done. And so if it's been fulfilled in Christ and done, why would there need to be the altar and sacrifices started up again. Did God change his mind? Or does God have two salvation plans for two different people, which is actually more similar to the dispensational teaching? And then I would ask, well, isn't, isn't Christ enough? 
see some of these taking this, uh, I guess, quote unquote, literally with a wooden literalism, it, it raises up these problems with that sort of expectation. Instead, I think this is talking about us as the temple of the living God, which is consistent with none other than St. Paul, living in the midst of a world that is in rebellion against God. So that's the, the temple. <laughs> verse 2, all right, next, verse, chapter 11, verse 3. Now we've got the two witnesses. They're kind of crazy, right? They've got the authority to prophesy, and they've got that number, that 1260, for three and a half years. And so then our question is, who are they? Um, first thing, is, what is sackcloth symbolic of? Mourning or, or repentance? Okay. And so um, this is the, the call to put on sackcloth and repent. And so what, if they're in sackcloth, what is their message? Repent. Well, that makes sense because what's the issue that's hanging in the air from chapter 9? The people didn't what? Repent. And so these two witnesses proclaim this message of repentance. The two witnesses, they were called witnesses. And if you remember back in chapter 2, verse 13, with Antipas. Antipas was the guy who was, who was martyred, who was killed. And he's called Antipas, my witness, the faithful one. So already witness is connected to um, this faithfulness in Christ. Two witnesses. They're called the two olive trees. So did you read Zechariah 4? Did you see the olive trees and the lampstands there? And these two olive trees are Joshua and Zerubbabel, which is, that's a fun name, right? That's one that kind of died out. Um, that's the high priest and the governor of Israel during Persian occupation. And they're pictured as these olive trees that are supplying oil to the golden lampstand. These were the ones who were anointed to lead God's people through a time of persecution. So again, you've got the three and a half tied to persecution, but then this, the olive trees are tied to a time of persecution where these faithful witnesses were standing there leading God's people through this time of persecution. So that image is already tied in with the olive trees. The lampstands. What are lampstands standing for earlier in the book? The church, right? That's why we've got our lampstand here. The church. Okay? So again, you get this picture of of the people of God. And then, um, somebody brought this up, they, if somebody throws too much shade at them, they get to just breathe fire on them, right? Pretty sweet superpower. What do you suppose this means? Do you suppose that uh, God's creating dragon people now? What does this mean? Yeah, so it's, you're speaking words, right? And fire usually means judgment. And so they're speaking out words. Um, so, now... Think about this. If, this is, if these two witnesses are going to signify the church, as I'm suggesting, remember when Jesus says these weird things about the, the things you pronounce now will be locked in heaven and things you unlock will be unlocked in heaven, that sort of thing? You've got the people as the temple of the living God and proclaiming this message of repentance and, and the word of God and that something's actually going on with that. Now the fire, it's not, again, a physical fire because they're not being protected physically, they're being protected spiritually, so there are spiritual realities with what, are, what is going on. Um, so let me suggest this. As you live your life and encounter people that are outside of Christ, the words you speak matter. 
like there are, are spiritual realities to what are going on that may not be immediately apparent. Which is why I'm, I'm suggesting to you that the book of Revelation is supposed to unmask this stuff. It's supposed to engage your imagination in a way that you see the world around you differently. Which means that in, in, in the mundane, day-to-day living, there are things of profound spiritual significance going on. Your faithfulness to Christ matters. That's why it's painted with these big colors and, and vivid images. Your faithfulness to Christ matters. It matters that you don't hop on down to the nearest temple and sacrifice to Caesar. It does matter. And you may think nobody sees it. But it matters. This is what uh, this vision, John through this vision is reminding them. Uh, Fight the breathing in, in Jeremiah 5.14 says, I'm now making my words in your mouth a fire and this people would and the fire shall devour them. Next, um, the, these, these uh, two witnesses have different powers. One of them is to shut the sky from raining. Who, who had that superpower in the Old Testament? Elijah, right? He had the power, we talked about that earlier. So, uh, sounds like Elijah. Another one was the power to basically turn water into blood and do all sorts of plagues. Who does that sound like? Moses. So the two people that are being brought to mind here are Elijah and Moses. Um, Note in Joel, which is referenced in Acts 2. Let me flip over to Joel. Which is hard to find because it's in the Minor Prophets. I'm going to be honest with you. Those 12 little books in the end are tricky for me to remember where everybody is. I mean, I know exactly what to do because I'm a pastor, but but lesser mortals have a little bit of trouble finding Joel. So Joel, tap, chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. Then afterward I'll pour out my spirit upon all, all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female slaves in those days I'll pour out my spirit. What uh, New Testament passage does this bring to mind? Pentecost. Acts 2, right? And so the Holy Spirit of God is poured out and then people are able to do things. There's this crazy kind of eschatological action going on. And again, I'm going to suggest that it's pointing to things that are happening on a spiritual realm, spiritual reality. And so um, what does this say about us? I mean, if, if... has anyone been able to make it stop raining? <clears throat> Has anyone been called in their daily life to, to speak a word of repentance to somebody? Now that you have to be careful how you do, right? Because <laughs> there's probably people that you, it'd be convenient to say, you know what, you need to knock it off and find Jesus. I tell that to Michigan fans all the time, and they don't. <laughs> still waiting for that great awakening. Uh, yeah, the law, yeah, we, we, so we have to be careful not to judge. But are there ways in which we can live our lives that call people to repentance? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the, you know, you may not have 
turn water to blood, but you can tell people there's a God that's in charge of everything. So what does this say about us? All right. Next, uh, verse 7, the, the beast makes war on them. And this, this refers to, then if the two witnesses are, are standing in for the people of God, who's the beast? We're going to find out more in 13, but it's this manifestation of Satan's rebellion makes war on them. For the people that first received this letter, who was the beast? Rome, and specific, especially who in Rome? Caesar, yeah. Yeah, for a time, Nero, for sure, yeah. And so, but, but Rome wasn't bad because it was Roman. It was bad because it kind of, it was a manifestation of the rebellion against God. And so as it's persecuting the people of God, that's, it's going on. So the beast is making war against the people of God. And so they die. And then we have this really weird thing where the people... Um, lost my spot. Where the, after they die, when people give presents and celebrate. And why did the people celebrate? Well, no, the people that were there, didn't, they weren't concerned about the spirit. The, prom- the prophets had tormented them. Yeah. So there was, some, yeah, there, was, there was something about the prophets' existence that was unsettling people. Those unsettling people. Um, is it possible to try and live your life faithfully to God and still tick people off, even if you're not getting in their face? And what you <laughs> good, good, yeah. And and why does that happen? Because people can be bothered by it. Can be bothered by it, and it's it's because their own consciences are upset and disturbed. They want to go along with the seduction of the world. Um, <clears throat> then they're, they're dead for three and a half days. And again, three and a half is a time of persecution. It's tied into the temple earlier and to uh, their time of, of testifying later. It's tied into the woman in chapter 12. And so you have this these witnesses, witnessing is a theme in Revelation. You're witnessing to Christ, and during this time of witnessing, you should expect persecution. And there's, that's what that three and a half stands for, but it's also the witnesses are doing that. And so this witnessing to Christ is, is what's going on in this time, and that's uh, what's going on. There's, uh, again, I should also mention, um, there's two of them. And uh, anybody know what the significance of two people would be? How did Jesus send out the disciples? Two by two. And that also went back further to, in, in the law, like in Deuteronomy, you see, 1915. If you were to make a case against someone and need to bring judgment, you needed two witnesses. And so two was seen as the way to, to be able to verify that something happened. In Noah's Ark, the animals went in two by two so they could witness to, gosh, it's wet out here. Yeah. How does a prophetic word work? And this is where I want to push to what... Um, prophetic in a, in a larger biblical sense, prophecy is not simply like visiting the fortune teller. Um, prophecy is, is speaking the word of God, and so that's when we find prophecy in there. That's what it, and so living a, a prophetic existence is, is pointing people towards God. When the world chases idols, when we live our lives faithful to God, 
that's going to be a prophetic presence in the midst of a world that's broken. And that prophetic presence makes people uncomfortable. Does the church's focus on Christ create an offense? And it it ought to. Not an offense because we're offensive. Sometimes we, we create an offense in the wrong way a lot of times, don't we? Right? I mean, it's not talking about going out and being a jerk because then people, when we go out and act as jerks, um, then people come to the conclusion of, well, this is not doing anything. I, I don't even know why I would bother going. Right? Like our faithful witness to Christ ought to unsettle people, but it's the, the offense should be, the gospel should be the offense, not our personality quirks. Um, another thing is, is our testimony comforting to the afflicted and afflicting the comforted? It's supposed to, yeah. Yeah, it can be. What would cause the world in our culture to rejoice over our demise? And this is a tough question. What w- if, we were to, if we are to follow this vision of the two witnesses, what would cause the world to rejoice over our demise? Yeah, so if the church was destroyed, in what behaviors, what, what sorts of things would we call for? And the, one, of the val- one of the things that's just really in our face all the time is, is sex and sexuality. And I'm not just talking about... Um, same-sex attraction, but I just mean sex in general. I would argue that as a culture, we see, we equate personhood with who you want to have sex with, and if you can have sex. I mean, I just, I don't think that, in our world, I don't think it's, like, theoretically possible for people to understand that there may be people who actually don't have sex. Like, well, but how can they express who they are? They just live, man. I mean, it, it, when we equate that to pers- there's more, there is more to you than who you are, than who you want to have sex with. Do you know that? <laughs> right? But but that's something that our world just it's it's we're like like I don't know deer in rutting season, right? And encouraged to live that way. And what does that and and what does that say about you? Because it says some really crappy things about us. And, and as a church, I don't, I don't know that we should be seen as the people who are browbeating everyone about what we're against. But I do think we need to have a word about, there is more to you than that. And to say it bluntly, God doesn't want your behavior to be ruled by your crotch. And I say it bluntly to, to hammer that point home, right? Because... The world tells us it ought to be that way, doesn't it? There is more to you than that. You were created in the image of God. You, you, were, you were paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not about how many people you can get naked with. Like, we need to have this, this prophetic presence that, that says to people, there is more to you. Don't sell yourself short. Don't chase those things. It's going to destroy you. And you are loved too much to fall into that. 
like maybe the first thing we need to do is just have our hearts broken by the things that break God's heart. And instead of just getting mad at people doing all this stuff, just these people are they're walking down a path of destruction, and I know it because I've done it. There's so many times in my life I, I sat on, it was usually Sunday nights, and I thought, Andy, you were supposed to be more than this. And that's a crummy feeling. And we need to be a place that speaks truth into people's lives in a loving way. And that truth is this, that Jesus Christ died for you. You were made in the image of God. And the blood of Christ is there to redeem you. That forgiveness of Jesus Christ is offered to you. And when we give that message, there are, there are going to be people and forces that don't like that message. And they're going to call us all sorts of names and prudes and this and that. And you know what? They're cutting off people's heads in Iraq, so we got it easy. But we need to, to live with this prophetic presence that speaks truth from our understanding of what creation is and who people are. Anyway, not to go off into a sermon. Then the people, um, get the, the, the witnesses get the indignity of no burial. The no burial means that no one cares about you and you're just left in the streets. But the truth is not that no one cares about them. Who does care about them? And how do we know what happens to the witnesses? They are, they are raised again. Now think about that message to a church that is under persecution. The world will laugh at you and spit at you and kill you and say nobody cares about you. But don't worry. Because God Almighty will raise you again. Right? That's something we need to hear, isn't it? So these witnesses, okay. The witnesses also signify the fulfillment of the old, co- the old covenant. We said the witnesses seem to have traits, especially from Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, so that'd be like the law and the prophets. Kind of like uh, the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah with Jesus. They're connected to the crucifixion of Christ. In 11.8, um, it talks about their uh, outside the city where our Lord was crucified. Um, then after that, after the crucifixion of Christ, they're raised from the dead in chapter 11, verse 11. They're then raised up to heaven in chapter 11, verse 12. When they're raised up to heaven, up in the clouds, who does that sound like? Jesus, right? In, in Acts chapter 1. And so here you have the law and the prophets were fulfilled in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But also, it suggests to us, if these witnesses are also the people of God, that we are in Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Which may sound weird. Let's see if it's... Did I put these on? Can you check the next slide? So I've got these verses from... Check the next one, sorry. Shoot, never mind. Okay, so in Galatians chapter 2... Verses 19 to 20, Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been, what? Crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? The people of God are tied up into the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Ephesians 2, But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Think about what that means. Doesn't, he, he's, he's saying that somehow, in the ascension of Christ, somehow we're with Christ. Like we've got, one of us made it. And if you're under persecution by the dragon, beating up people, how much do you need to know that you've got one of us, Jesus Christ, on the throne and in power? That it's going to turn out okay. That though the wrong seems also strong, the Lord is ruler yet. Revelation 3.21 says, uh, this is one of the conquers, uh, to, to one of the conquers, one of the promises of people who conquer. To the one who conquers. Remember, how do you conquer in Revelation? Usually by dying faithfully. <laughs> so go get them, gang. <laughs> to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So again, just like the witnesses here, you have um, the the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and by faith in Christ, we're, we're tied into that. How does this change how you see reality around you? This is why I think Revelation is such a powerful book. What does it mean that God is reigning even though it might look like he's not? It's helpful. Like, when, when there's the story of, oh, was it, I think I talked about two weeks ago, with the Syrians with the, that were martyred for their faith and the, the one guy had to watch his teenage son be tortured in front of him. But what does it mean as we hear that story? What do we believe is going on with those martyrs right now? They're under the altar, but they're with God and glory, aren't they? And they're under the altar crying out, how long crying for justice, which will be given? This changes the ways that, that we can see things. This captures our imagination, helps us see the world. What, is, what does victory mean for us? Faithful death. And it may mean just dying to yourself. And by dying to yourself, dying to, um, uh, Dr. Mulholland writes about dying to your false self. The false self is defined by the, the goals and desires and wants of the world. Or like Jesus says, uh, for those who love their life in this world will lose it. And, and he's not talking about us being careless with our own lives, but being faithful, which is going to cost something. All right. Um, how is this, let's see. Remember the, the thing that's going on. The, the issue that's raised is um, people aren't repenting. So instead of sending judgment through fiery hail... What does God do? God sends his son, Jesus Christ. And then a people who are supposed to do what? Repent and and to be witnesses. And as witnesses to live our lives as people who call for repentance. So if you look at um, the end of chapter 11. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They're terrified the sea. Verse 13, at that moment there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. Um, why don't you look quickly. Isaiah chapter 6. 
verse 13. Isaiah 6.13 says, uh, let's see. Well, I'll read with 11. Then, they said, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is utterly desolate. So this is a word of judgment and destruction. Until the Lord sends everyone far away in the vast emptiness in the midst of the land, even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again like terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. So there's a tenth that remain. Keep that in mind. A tenth remain. All right, Amos, chapter 5, verse 3. Amos is after Joel. Oh, now I'm into the Apocrypha. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Amos, chapter 5. Verse 3, for thus says the Lord God, the city that marched out of a thousand shall have a hundred left, that which marched out a hundred shall have ten left. So you notice there's one-tenth left. Nine-tenths perish in judgment, one-tenth is left. In 1 Kings 19, um, we find out that there's only 7,000 faithful prophets left. So think about that. Only one-tenth left from judgment. Nine-tenths perished from judgment. Only 7,000 prophets are left. At the moment, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. So is there a tenth left? How much is left? Nine-tenths. Which is the exact reverse, isn't it? Instead of one-tenth left, it's now nine-tenths. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed. Were there 7,000 left? All the rest are left. 7,000 were killed. The exact opposite. I suggest what this pointing to is, does the work of Christ through the witnesses matter? Judgment is coming to nine-tenths. And then there's this flip. And then it says, and just to kind of further get this point, and the rest were terrified, and they did what? Gave glory to God of heaven. They didn't have repentance from all the raining hail, fire, and all that stuff. But Jesus Christ comes, and the witnesses testify to the work of Christ, and then something happens. Something happens. And then, let's see. i see what time it is. <laughs> We've got 24 minutes. Um, and let me jump on to uh, chapter 12. You've got the woman and the beast. Who do you think the woman is? Israel? Church? I would suggest it's probably both. Right? The people of God. So the people of God in the Old Testament are Israel. The people of God in the New Testament are the church, which uh, is ethnic Jews that follow Christ as well as ethnic not Jews that follow Christ. Like the people of God, it's expanded. The category is expanded, but uh, defined by Christ. 
So the woman is this, the people of God. It could also, um, for a moment, represent Mary, couldn't it? Because what's, what's going on here? She's going to give birth, right? And she's going to give birth to one who uh, can rule with a rod of iron. That's a messianic text from Psalm chapter 2. And so this was, as they hear about the one ruling with iron, that's, that's like, this is the prophecy that's one of the Messiah prophecies. So as people would hear that, they would think, oh, he's talking about the Messiah in there. So you have this woman that's about to give birth to what is obviously the Messiah. And what's going to happen? Or what's threatening them? The dragon that wants to eat the baby, right? This, is, this will be our Christmas Eve text, by the way. I'm thrilled. It's really, this is a fun, this is like a cosmic Christmas. But it's a, the reason I do that is it's, it's a different way to hear the story that, that we're so familiar with. And think about what the story is, is telling you. There are cosmic implications. This is, the dragon's after the baby because there is a war going on. And this one that's coming is crucial to the whole thing. And so when Jesus is born, um, it's a big deal. And there's literally a, a battle of, of evil and stuff going on. The baby's born, it looks like the dragon's going to get him, and then what happens? He's snatched up, yeah. So he's snatched up. So what do you think that's describing? The resurrection? And since he's snatched up, what else? The ascension. Okay, so you have like... And so when the, when it, so the idea of snatched means it's like the dragon's kind of got... Starting to get him, and then he's pulled away. Like it gets that kind of image. So where does it look like the dragon might win? The cross, right? It looks like the devil's done it. The, the rebellion has won. And then like victory is snatched out of his hands. And then it turns out that that moment, I mean, this, again, it should blow our minds that we have a cross in the sanctuary because it looked like the moment of the devil's greatest victory. And God is so much better than the devil is bad that the cross is not the symbol of the devil's greatest victory. It's the symbol of Christ's greatest victory. It's the revelation of who God is. This cruciform love through Jesus Christ. Think about that. That the goodness of God is so much greater than the darkness of evil that the darkness of evil doesn't even get a trophy for an almost win. It is completely and utterly transformed by the resurrection of Christ. And it shows us that God forgives us of our sins. It shows us that God is greater than death. It shows us that God is willing to go this far out of love for us. The, the child's snatched away. Um, how are we to view the devil now? Defeated. He's a loser. He lost. Christ has defeated. Now, why would this matter to the people who first received this letter? How does it feel to them some days that the devil's winning? Does it ever feel that way to you? And, you get, and, and so this is, again, this is why I think this book is so powerful because it speaks to us today. And on those days that you just, it just feels like evil has the upper hand, that, that though the wrong seems off so strong, the Lord is ruler yet. And, and you remember this vision. The, the dragon thought he won, but the child was snatched away. 
And now he's seated in power and glory. And he's our guy. And he's in charge ultimately. And so you let that engage your imagination and let that shape how you're going to live your day. So you're not living the day based on what the world is telling you about yourself and how evil is winning. You're living the day based on Scripture that God has already won and, and the, final, the final act is coming. That ultimately, if you are in Christ, you have life. What does it mean for the woman to be in the wilderness? What does this bring to mind? Wandering in the wilderness. So the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness. What happened there when they wandered in the wilderness? God was faithful. They were tested. They were provided for. Did they like that? Not always. <laughs> I was reading uh, with the fire coming out of their mouths. Um, there was uh, one of the references was to, uh, oh crap, one of the chapters in Numbers when um, the people are complaining and then God opens up the earth and like swallows them in and then shoots fire out and kills 250 of them. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> There's some rough stuff in there. Uh, um, so the wilderness is this, it's this interesting place where there's testing, but God is faithful, where the people of God are shaped, where they're provided for, but they complain. It's this like, like where, else is, where, where else does the wilderness come into play in Scripture? Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And you think about that as Jesus kind of uh, it was recapitulating the history of Israel. He was, he was um, kind of going through the, the steps of what Israel did. He wandered in the wilderness and faced temptation and, and testing too. But where Israel failed in their testing, what happened with Christ? He succeeded. Which is, this is, this is our story. Where we fail in our testing, Christ is victorious. And so we hitch our wagon to him. But this wilderness brings that into mind. So um, if the woman, so I'm going to argue, then the woman is is standing in for the the people of God. If the woman is in the wilderness, what does that say about us right now? We're in the wilderness. But that's similar to, that's just a a way that the church has understood itself anyway. We're waiting for our promised land. Our promised land is the new heavens and the new earth. Are we there yet? No. Will will, Will we be there yet after next November and the election happens? Not unless Jesus comes back. If Jesus comes back, then yes, we'll be, that'll be great. It's God's timing, and we're not going to force it. Yes, we're, yes. And, and certainly there's people that are going to have a positive effect on things, and people have a more negative effect, absolutely. But what that comes down to is, are you living a life faithful to Christ? Not, do you have the answer to bring a utopia into the world? So, uh, I, okay, what is it, uh, how does this speak to our situation? What, why does it matter if we understand ourselves in the midst of the wilderness as the church? Got to remember whose you are. Look, God is faithful. Does God provide? That eventually, the promised land's coming, Right? He's going to take care of it. Yeah, absolutely. What else? The devil loses. So, again, this is engaging our imagination to understand our present situation. Um, Revelation 12, 11 gives another really good 
kind of understanding of where, we at, where we're at and what we're doing. 12.11 says, But they have conquered him. So, oh, I'll start from the beginning. Okay, so I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades, who's the accuser? The devil, Satan, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. I'm going to suggest to you that that is not a future reality, but it is now. That the devil has come down to the earth and with great wrath is acting. Why do I say that? Have you watched the news? But not only that, um, that there's an attack on, on people spiritually. So I want to give you some, uh, some interesting background to this. Because there were some, um, so the people who first heard this story, there were some cultural echoes going on with the story of the woman and the dragon, I want you to be aware of. So there was a story um, where there was uh, this woman named Leto. She was a goddess. She was pregnant by Zeus. She was pregnant with twins Apollo and Artemis. Apollo was destined to kill the evil dragon, Python. So Python pursued Leto, but she was rescued by winds, that were sent by Zeus. She gave birth, and then Apollo found Python four days later and killed him to avenge his mother. See the echoes in that story? Isn't that kind of crazy? So this is, this is a story that people would have been familiar with. There was uh, Roman emperors associated themselves with this story, and they saw themselves as Apollo. So they would say the goddess Roma, like our, our city, the empire was the woman. She gave birth to the empire, or the emperor, and the emperor then slays the chaos monster who brings peace and light into civilization. And so Augustus was hailed as the new Apollo. Nero had his image on coins with the rays of light behind him, which was kind of signature of Apollo. He wanted to look like Apollo. They understood themselves in terms of the story. And so not only is this story one of the stories in the background of, of things, but it's a story that was used uh, politically to understand the reality of Rome, that Rome is this... Um, the, the woman is Roma, the Roman Empire, giving birth to the Savior, which is the Caesar. Now, this vision comes to John and says, that's not actually the truth. The truth is, who is the woman? The people of God. Who's the one who's born? It's not Caesar. It's Christ. It's Jesus who brings the peace and order and who's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, not Caesar. Um, there was a, a Babylonian story in the background <clears throat> where um, it's in the Enuma Elish, but Tiamat was this seven-headed sea beast and was the force of chaos. And there was a woman, um, similar to a woman in Revelation 12, that had a son named Marduk, who then hacked up Tiamat, this sea beast. And in that battle, a third of the stars were thrown from the sky. So again, it's undermining these, these stories were how people understood themselves. How people understood reality around them. They were the ways, uh, the, the worldview that shaped them. And one of the things that scripture is doing is it's, it's 
sabotaging those stories and say, well, no, that's, that's not actually accurate. You're looking for the promised one who's coming to save. Let me tell you who that is. Does that make sense? You're looking for the promised one who comes to save. Let me tell you, it's not who you think it is. It's not you. Um, first guy's name was Jim. The second, no, I don't know. Uh, the, so, I don't know, but these were, these were um, their, their cultural stories. The first, Zeus and Apollo and Artemis, these were their, their gods and, and part of that. And so I don't know when those began. And the Babylonian ones, like that Babylonian one was, um, it was the origins of that are from around the time Genesis was, yeah, it's early. Um, and, but yeah, so I don't know how they started. But I think in part, one of the things it tells us is people are looking for God. And people are looking for a Savior. And it's, interesting to me that the move here is, instead of saying no, you silly, there isn't a Zeus, you're a moron. They say, I understand you're looking for a savior. Let me tell you who that is. Let me tell you who your story is really about. That's a different way of doing it. Um, And so, That's one of the things that St. Patrick was really good at. There's a whole thing about him and the shamrock. And one of the things he did was he went in, into these Celtic areas. The, the very people who had earlier in his life had kidnapped him and made him a slave for several years. He escaped, became a priest, and then went back to the people who enslaved him and learned more and more of their culture and used that to point towards Christ. Um, I'll give my spiel on Halloween. I understand, I had a friend from seminary, I asked him, he was from um, oh shoot, Virgin Islands, St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. And I said, well, you know, do you guys do anything for Halloween? He's like, well, no, it means something different where I come from. And so they just didn't do it. And I, I can totally respect that. And so there's people, there's Christian people who, who don't participate in Halloween for reasons of conscience, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, but I would say this, that my approach is, and this is the reason why we're doing the trunk or treat, um, the, the world has a story about things, and I think we need to enter into that and point them to Christ. And so I think one of the things is um, Halloween, I think if you look at, the, at, at its best, I don't know, when I grew up, like we went trick-or-treating around the neighborhood, and we went out and saw my grandparents and, and great-aunt and uncle in the country and got potato fried cakes and had like good kind of family time. I think that's a good thing. Now it's so weird because Halloween is like all of these costumes are so risque and crazy and or gory and crazy, and it, it's and I think we've got but we've got an opportunity to say you know I don't know that that's what you're looking for. Let me show you the sorts of things that that God would have us do. Um, and so that's why I think it's important for us to to have a place. Um, I don't know. So some of the things I've said before is I don't want to give, like some people say, well, it's the devil's night. We should not do it. And I, I don't think we should give any night to the devil. But instead that we should be out giving, giving them being salt and light. And so when you do the trunk or treat, what are we doing? Well, I'm thinking there's probably parents who are scrambling to get kids in and out of minivans to do trick or treat. And so, what are they going to know about our church? 
you love my kids. That's a story we should tell. And we're going to tell it by what we do. So I want to encourage you as you're kind of thinking through these things and thinking through these visions and and letting this stuff kind of shape how you see the world around you. Think about um, in Revelation 12, how you had this, uh, all these stories about understanding who they were, and, and the answer to the vision was, well, let me tell you that this is, you're really looking for Jesus. And we can do that in all sorts of ways, because people are chasing, uh, I don't know, whether it's job promotions or more money or more whatever feel-good thing they're looking for. And you say, you know, what you're really looking for is a relationship with God. Which, you know, if, if somebody's like out to get high, they're probably not really hip to hearing that from you. I know, I understand that. I'm like, you don't want cocaine right now. You want Jesus. Leave me alone. <laughs> but they need someone in their lives to, to love them enough to point them to something that's life-giving. And so, anyway, uh, I want you to think about those things. Uh, any questions as you're ready to close? This is more preachy to you tonight. So. Um, all right, next week, uh, make sure to check over your reading list and see what we're doing. We're doing 13 and 14, and I can't remember if there's other reading things on there, but you can go ahead and check that out. Make sure I don't have any other notes about that on here. So let's go ahead and uh, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be your people, help us to be your witnesses. Um, and all that that entails. Help us to be people who, who tell a different story, a different story about what people are worth, a different story about who people are, a different story about what life is about, a different story about where joy is to be found. Help us to be people that, um, through the story of our lives, point people to your son, Jesus Christ, because he's the one that they're looking for. I pray, God, that you would bless us and keep us, that you would watch over us, and indeed fill us with your, with your very presence, the Holy Spirit, so that we can be your church, your witnesses in the world today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much.